0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Tell Me About Podcast, where each week, two nerdy friends deep dive random topics. I'm Laura.
1: Yeah, and uh, I'm Tom.
0: And this is episode number 15.
1: Before we get started, first, we hope everyone had a a happy and healthy Thanksgiving. We hope that that was filled with family and friends and food.
0: And love.
1: And love and whatever you celebrate Thanksgiving with. Uh, the other thing we want to do since we are now officially in the in this season now is we want to tell you a little bit about the plan going forward with our show, at least for the next couple of weeks. So you're going to hear this episode when it comes out on November 29th. We're going to have uh, episodes on December 6th and December 13th. At the very least, we are still deciding whether or not we will have an episode on December 20th. What we do know is from the 20th onward, at least through the end of the year, we're going to have a little hiatus, holiday hiatus, so that we can enjoy the holidays with our families and um, take a little time off. And then we will be back sometime uh, in early January after the new year. Now, that being said, we are currently uh, in the Muppet Labs. Us and Doctor Honeydew and Beaker are currently plotting and scheming, and we are potentially—we may potentially have some surprises for you during the the little uh, holiday break we're going to have, as well as some things that we uh, maybe some things that we want to try going forward. So. Uh, this might be a good little experiment uh, experimentation period for us. Stay tuned for that, and more information will be coming on that. Uh, that's all we can really say about it right now. It is something that we are potentially working on and potentially we may have during the holiday break. So keep your ears and eyes peeled for that.
0: Yes, we're we're definitely working on some things that we think you guys are going to be really excited about. So definitely stay tuned and we will have more information in the coming weeks about that. So, Tom, tell us what we're talking about today.
1: If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we went through one of our favorite office episodes. And we mentioned before that this was something that we were going to do occasionally from time to time. Well, we've now tried it with a movie, doing it with one of our favorite movies. I'll give you a hint. It involves glasses, a red stapler, and a plot similar to Superman 3. Today, we are talking about Office Space.
0: It is certainly one of my favorite movies, for sure.
1: It is, and it's absolutely one of my favorite movies as well. It's, it's a movie that kind of the overarching themes of which have aged incredibly well some of the jokes have not because comedy jokes don't tend to age well and there are some jokes in here if you do watch it for the first time that are going to be a little insensitive uh, we definitely don't condone them there are also some tropes in here that don't age well but the overarching theme of the movie is something that aged incredibly well and is i think pretty prescient especially now in 2023 and especially, you know, Laura, we were both kids Mm
0: -hmm.
1: when this came out. I was 10 years old when this came out and I first saw this in high school. I didn't really understand this movie and really until I was an adult actually working. Mm
0: -hmm. I agree. I saw this. It came out in 1999 as a dark comedy and became very much a cult classic. I first saw the movie in the early 2000s when I was a teenager, and it was very quirky, and I really enjoyed it, but kind of like you said, I didn't appreciate the gravity of that and how relatable it actually is, and now that I you know, had a couple jobs under my belt, and now I'm kind of in a, in a corporate job position, it's, it's certainly the most relatable that I've ever found it, so it's I agree. The overarching theme still holds up today, absolutely
1: we've all been there. We have all been so angry at traffic that we have literally just rocked back and forth in our seat, wanting to rip the steering wheel right out of the column. Uh, We've all had blood feuds against a printer. We've all had uh, been stuck in a windowless cubicle. Uh, We have all had, well, I don't think any was, I don't think all of us have had eight different bosses tell us about TPS reports, but it's so much and we'll get into this as a movie too but there's actually a, a, again because so many of these things that we talk about relate to each other uh mike judge who did office space he also did a idiocracy and there's a lot of idiocracy in office space as well they're just they're, they're similar in, in in kind of the way they're they're shot if you are a king of the hill fan you'll know that there is a type of an office space type episode and i think it's season 5 where dale is forced to take an office job and he the only way he excels is by coming becoming the guy who fires everybody it's it's a it's one of my more it's one of my favorite episodes uh in the series so you should go check that out as well but today we're going to be going through the episode we'll be going through some of our favorite uh favorite moments some of our favorite lines from the movie some of our favorite scenes And also just telling you a little bit more about the movie itself and the cast, because the cast is very much a who's who of, oh, yeah, that guy. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, yeah, that person.
0: So as you mentioned, the movie was written and directed by Mike Judge, and currently it has 80% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 93% audience score, which does not surprise me at all. And it has a 7.8 out of 10 score on IMDB, which I think is actually a little low, if you ask me.
1: If yeah, I mean, we might have found out that Siskel and Ebert only gave it like two and a half thumbs.
0: So I did some background research about the movie, and one video that I saw talked about like how Mike Judge, and you've alluded to this in our past episodes, how he really writes how people would spontaneously talk. And I think for this movie specifically, the dialogue really makes it even more relatable that you don't feel like you're watching actors in a movie that you, you think you're actually watching, you know, people in their real life. And I think at the time when it came out, it was obviously before the show The Office and there was really nothing else like it. And I think the importance of this movie and its message really can't be understated. Why don't we start going through the cast?
1: Uh, the main character in the story is Peter Gibbons, who is played by Ron Livingston. Sex and the City fans will know that name.
0: So for those of you Sex and the City fans and, and even those of you who did watch the show. So Ron Livingston played a character named Berger and he infamously was the guy who broke up with Carrie on a post-it note. So fans of the show just absolutely hate him it was a really fucked up way to break up with somebody and he even today i saw an interview with him recently is is still still gets shit for that role and what he did to this pretend character essentially so he's yeah berger was not you know a fan favorite of the of the sex and the city fans at all
1: we also have i guess you would say the other main character one of the other main characters in the in the movie is uh, Bill Lumberg, who's played by the a great comedic actor, Gary Cole. You've seen him in a lot of different things. He was the play-by-play announcer alongside Jason Bateman in Dodgeball. He played Will Ferrell's father in Talladega Nights. He was Reese Bobby in Talladega Nights. He was fantastic in that as well. P.S. Don't try to snort this box of Lucky Charms. He was like a lot of comedic actors. He had his one drama. He got his drama reps in an SVU episode. The episode is titled Brotherhood. I believe it's back from back in season five. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite episodes. But then again, I am also, I tended to like the first six or seven seasons of SVU better than anything else. And that's a whole ep- another story for a whole other day.
0: So the character of Bill Lumberg was actually based on a real character that Mike Judge knew and casting him in the role really convinced Mike Judge to to go through with the movie. I think he was a little bit on the fence. Would this be successful? Would audiences be receptive to it? And once he found Gary Cole to play Bill Lumberg, he was absolutely convinced that he should do it because he just played the character so, so well.
1: Gary Cole really owned the character with his trademark what's happening Mm -hmm. yeah i'm gonna need you to come in on saturday
0: and the memes that have come out of this movie are just are incredible and you still see them all over the internet today
1: and another theme with mike judge is that he pulls characters from different things so the next character we're going to get into is we're going to get into milton and milton with his red swing line stapler
0: which I will have some background information on as we get into the movie.
1: Uh, who was constantly being ignored uh, and constantly being uh, put aside uh, until, as, as you know, until he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And that's a bit of foreshadowing. Talk about another guy who who owned the character, the great Steven Root. Uh, another Mike Judge regular. Of course, he was in Dodgeball. He was... He the voice of Bill Tree from Dutry from King of the Hill, news radio, he was hilarious in news radio as the station station manager alongside the, the late, great Phil Hartman and Vicki Lewis and Andy Dick and Joe Rogan. And he nails this character to a T. This is a character that I believe was based off of a comic strip.
0: Yes, it was. It wasn't a comic strip from what I remember. It was an animated short um, that was on television. But yeah, yeah, it it was based on a prior character. Yeah.
1: And by the way, just so I checked, Roger Ebert gave it three stars.
0: Okay, not three thumbs up.
1: No, three three stars.
0: Three out of what? I guess three out of four. four? Okay. all right. So I agree with you that Steven Root is certainly a very versatile character and he absolutely nailed this character of Milton and being that squirrely guy who mumbles a lot and something that you kind of wonder that I didn't, didn't really think about until this rewatch is like, what do you think he does at home? If he's this weird at work, like, can you imagine what he does at home? But that's a whole nother thing.
1: For the first time, I did notice when he mumbles, when Peter asked him to turn the radio down, uh, he says, I don't know if she can listen with the headphones. I don't know why I can't listen at a reasonable volume.
0: Mm-hmm. And if, and
1: I think the radio was talking about like pirate was like a pirate theft or something like
0: that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Two of the other main characters are Peter's friends in the movie. Samir, who is played by uh, Ajay N- uh, Naidu. And David Herman, who plays Michael Bolton? There's nothing wrong with that name.
0: Everything was fine until he was 12 years old and that no-talent ass clown started winning Grammys.
1: And why can't he just go by Mike?
0: (laughs) He's the one who sucks. Why should he change his name?
1: (laughs) One of my favorite lines in the movie. David Herman is another King of the Hill kind of Semi regular, voiced a bunch of side characters. Uh, I don't remember Ajay from anything else, but he was—he's one of my favorite characters in, in Office Space. He's—he—he's he, he's great with physical comedy. To be honest, both him and Michael, both him and David, are, are fantastic with the physical comedy.
0: I agree. I think they balance out Peter in that way where he is going through more of like an internal transformation. And then you see the physical comedy more from Samir and Michael. Yeah, I agree with you. Well,
1: and Peter is is very reserved. It's those two that are kind of more physical, like when Michael is pushing the the printer. Oh, yeah. You like that with the, <laughs> with the printer? And by the way, we should notice if you have not seen this movie. They're going to be massive spoilers. We'll we'll put a spoiler alert on the on the episode description. But this is we're going to be talking about things in the movie kind of as we go along. Another way where the kind of the juxtaposition of this really plays out is when they're in the field with the printer. And it's almost like a mob hit. And they have the baseball bat. And Samir is very cool and collected. Yo, know, he and, and, and Ajay, I think, in the making of this actually talked about kind of the subtleties of, of doing it this way where he kind of pushes, I think it's either uh, David or, or Ron back with, you know, kind of just like this soft pushing back with the baseball bat. And then he's just whacking away at it. From that, you go to Michael, who was just almost like just rabbitly, just tearing at it like, like a Wolverine. Even something as subtle as, you know, him slipping and falling on the tray. Again, it's just, it's that juxtaposition. And they play off each other so well.
0: That is literally my favorite scene in the movie, hands down. And, and you're right, the, the physical comedy in this. And again, the little nuances that Mike Judge put in there are just absolutely incredible. So speaking of David Herman for the character of Michael Bolton, he was actually the first choice for the role by Mike Judge. And at the time, he was locked into this contract with Mad TV, and he really wanted to participate in the movie. So he wound up getting fired from MAN TV by screaming his lines one day at a table read, so he could eventually do the movie. So I thought that was really interesting story about how he was able to participate in the movie.
1: There is also another Mad TV alum who has a one significance in the movie, and Orlando Jones. We'll get to that later on.
0: And also the the biggest name for sure in this movie is Jennifer Aniston. She plays Joanna, uh, Peter's love interest. And at the time, obviously, she was at the height of her fame with friends. So she was obviously a well-known person at this time. And I was watching some documentary and they talked about like, why, you know, why did she accept this role? It seemed to be like, I guess, not, not a blockbuster movie, essentially, that they would think that caliber of an actress would go for and they talked about how she really wanted to get more of the blockbuster roles but for some reason wasn't getting hired for these movie roles so when office space came along she was she was happy to accept And i really can't think of anybody else in this character i i heard that uh, kate hudson was considered for the role but definitely it's it's jennifer anderson's role
1: and she nails it so well
0: and she plays such a like a subtle like reserved character as well, but she, she can also be, I think towards the end as, as we'll get to, she's, she's more of the voice of reason and more of the, I guess, conscience for Peter and kind of, I guess, putting the thought in his head that, you know, he needs to do the right thing.
1: And you mentioned, you know, this, when this comes out 1999, that's what season five, season six of friends,
0: something like that. Yeah.
1: Right around when, when I think when, when Chandler and Monica get together, And it's right in the heart of the Ross and Rachel, will they, won't they? So at this time, she's probably the most, she's the hottest, probably comedic sitcom actress out there. She's on the most popular sitcom, one of the most popular shows on television. There's a reason why NBC ran broadcast television as long as it did. Where it had its Thursday nights where either went from Cheers to Seinfeld to Friends. And then there was ER on that on top of that, too. It's wild to see there were other people in this movie who would become more well-known later on. But she was really kind of the headline grabber. When you look at the promotional posters for Office Space, not a lot of their posters that I remember. I mean, obviously, it's the famous poster of, of Milton, supposed I guess, Milton covered it in the Post-it notes.
0: I thought that too. It's actually somebody covered in post-it notes with Milton hiding behind them. I thought what you thought until I actually looked it up to make sure I got it right. And Milton's actually hiding behind them. It's interesting that you mention that because apparently Mike Judge hated the poster of it because he said that it didn't really make sense for what the movie was. Like it wasn't really telling you what the movie was about. And I could see that. Like looking at the poster, you can't really tell what the essence of the movie is about really. So I, I agree with him there.
1: But you would also think if you're a movie and you had, you landed Jennifer Aniston, one of the, ho- one of the, like I said, the most popular actresses on television, you know, her name is not in bold on the poster. It's, it's, it's interesting, but again, it it's, it speaks to how well it was cast.
0: And just to wrap up the cast section. Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson both auditioned to be the neighbor Lawrence but it went to Dietrich Bader of Drew Carey show fame and I don't know if you've ever watched that show it was one of my favorites growing up as well loved that show and he's he's such a good comedic actor
1: very funny that show was another show that was very well cast uh the the studio that did Drew Carey is very is a, that's a very well-known studio as well that they put out a lot of shows during the 90s I I know for a fact they put out, I think George Lopez was the other show that they put out during the 90s. Another show that was very just wonderfully cast Drew with Krista Miller, with Ryan Stiles, Dietrich Bader. Uh, And then really the the last two really main characters in in this are the efficiency experts, the Bobs.
0: The Bobs.
1: One of the Bobs is the great John C. McGinley. Uh, You know him best as, Dr. Perry Cox on Scrubs. You can see decent chunks of that character in the Bobs from kind of the blank, kind of little intimidating stare uh, to the famous, what would you say you do here? The other Bob also had a long career in TV. He played, um, he did a one-off on Golden Girls years and years ago. He was best known as playing Paul on Cheers, who was like, who was basically, he was the punching bag that was even below Cliff. So when they couldn't make fun of Cliff, they made fun of Paul. Uh, And then there were also some, and we'll get into, there were a couple of side characters that we'll get into as we start the movie, then we'll go from there too.
0: So apparently when the film was released, it did not do well initially at the box office, and audiences started to see it more regularly on Comedy Central and then when it came out on VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray, it slowly became the cult classic that it is today. And again, it it is surprisingly realistic, but you also you feel that sense of like hopelessness and desperation that's that's pretty rampant in in corporate America. So
1: So yeah. uh with that, let's we'll go through the movie and we're we're not going to we're probably not going to go through line by line, obviously. We'll go through some of the we'll go through the major parts of the movie here. So as the movie starts, they're sitting in traffic. Peter is weaving back and forth between lanes that won't move. Uh, Samir is literally about to shake his car apart.
0: Cursing up a storm.
1: Cur- cursing up a storm. They get back to it. There's a really funny scene later on in the movie where it's them just cursing for about five straight lines of dialogue. Uh, and we'll get to that later. Uh, And it's Michael then not wanting the person selling flowers on the road to notice him singing rap.
0: So I I wanted to ask, which one are you? Which one of these three is is typical for your morning commute?
1: I am a tie between Peter and Samir.
0: Mm -hmm. I am definitely, I definitely lean more Samir. I don't like sitting in traffic. I only have about a 15, 20 minute commute and that's for a reason. So I, yes, I'm definitely a Samir in this situation.
1: Yeah. So I am, I, I, I tend to lean toward both of them. There are times where I will just scream. I will just scream random things in my car when I'm sitting in traffic or I'll just have quiet resignation of how much this sucks.
0: And you also see in the opening scene that Milton is sitting, waiting for his bus as the three of them are driving to work. So they they show up at this software company called InAttack, and it's supposedly a Texas-based software company, although it doesn't outright say that in the movie. That's essentially where it's supposed to be, and it, it looks very cookie-cutter, very 90s software company, so it's it's very intentionally supposed to be bland and cookie-cutter.
1: The movie was filmed in Austin. Mike Judge, pretty famous Austin resident, a lot of cities in Texas kind of fit that, you know, have those kind of non-distinct office parks, kinda of have the highway set up the way it is, uh, have those kind of two to three tiered like apartment complex, not really apartment buildings, but more like a pump like apartment complexes. Uh you'll be you'll see those like every block. <laughs>
0: Mike Judge actually said that he wanted to make an attack, uh, both inside and outside of the building, as realistic and as oppressive looking as possible.
1: Well, he succeeded. He did. But like I said, they never really say where it takes place. If you notice in the scenes where there are cars, the license plates don't say a state. They just have the American flag on them. When they do the zoom ins during the consultant meetings and they they think they they actually do a zoom in of I think Tom Smikowski's personnel file. You notice it doesn't have it just has an address, it doesn't have a town or a zip code. It does have a, a number that looks like it's a two eight one area code, which would be Houston, but it's kind of left to be amorphous because this could be any anywhere in corporate America.
0: So speaking of license plates, we see the boss, Bill Lumberg, roll up into his reserved parking spot in his blue Porsche and the license plate in acronyms say my Porsche.
1: And it's after this uh, that Peter walks into the office and first he is shocked by the handle on the door.
0: As he approaches the door, you see him very hesitant to enter. And I have definitely been there where you walk up to the door of your office or the front door of the building and you just pause for a second. Like, do I really have to go in here today? And you do. But I think we've all had those moments like, I can't do this today.
1: Yep. And then he gets shocked by the by the door anyway. <laughs> um, it's after this where he then is informed by Bill Lumberg that he's missing the cover letter on his TPS reports.
0: Did you see the memo?
1: I have the memo. The first scene is basically about three or four different bosses telling him about his TPS reports.
0: And you really, the more people that come to talk to him about it, you just feel the pain on his face about how annoyed he is to be reminded this many times about one issue.
1: After this, he we cut to Samir and Michael. It's the first time they appear in the movie. They're getting a company-wide memo.
0: I think, too, it's a good time to establish everybody's name as Peggy is is going around and, mm-hmm. and handing out the memos and saying their names.
1: There's a couple of jokes about Samir's name that have not aged well at all.
0: No, it's it's a very racist joke, and it it is made a couple of times throughout the movie, and yes, it does not age well.
1: But this is also where we get the Michael Bolton. This is where we get the "Why should I change my name? He's the one who sucks
0: actually. and the the quote about the no talent ass clown, it was it was very, first of all, the disdain in which uh, the actor brings to that is absolutely priceless. And I think it kind of is supposed to explain why the character is into more rap music and not necessarily like the the music of Michael Bolton. And fun fact for you, he, the actor actually improvised the word ass clown at the last minute. The The original line was that he was an asshole. So he, he switched <laughs> that at the last minute and it just, it just makes it that much better.
1: It's phenomenal. It's really, is phenomenal. At that point, Peter tells them he needs to go out and get coffee. And which we then get, he's then told, sounds like somebody has a case of the Mondays.
0: Which has anybody ever said that to you? Like I and I mean, in re, not in reference to the movie. like, no, you've never heard that, right?
1: I have never heard that. I think if I did, I probably would have the same reaction that Peter does.
0: It's just it's, yeah, yeah, agreed.
1: They go to this kind of Chili's Applebee's type of establishment where there's a extremely annoyingly uppity, like very high strung waiter who's trying to, to sell them in different items and tells them, Oh, somebody has a case of the Mondays.
0: He's just right off the bat. You find him so, so irritating. His name is Brian and he's just such a jackass.
1: And I, and he's another one of those guys that, that has been in like a bunch of things, or I think you've, you've seen him in like a bunch of things. One of the, the tropes during the movie that there are different jokes that are kind of repeated, Literally, the same exact joke is is repeated. At this point, Peter's talking about his girlfriend. He says, "Oh, I you know I get the feeling she's cheating on me," and they say, "We we understand. You know, I get that feeling." He goes, "Well, what do you mean by that?" Okay. Meanwhile, Michael is putting about 18, 18 sugar packets in his coffee during the entire thing, and this is when Peter says he's going to see. Uh, His girlfriend is telling him that he needs to go see an occupational hypnotherapist.
0: It's in this conversation too, something that we'll see later that Peter's kind of saying, you know, I know Lumberg's going to make me work on Saturday. And this is when Michael mentions a software program that can essentially create a virus to rip off that place big time is what he says. And that'll definitely come back yet later in the movie.
1: As they're getting ready, as they're drinking their coffee, we, that's when we first see Jennifer Aniston. Uh, it's made pretty clear that Peter has a crush on her. Samir tells her, "Why don't you just ask her out?" And He says, "Well, why can't ask her out? I'm just another asshole customer." We're into, introduced to Joanna and Joanna's boss, who is played by Mike Judge. And this is when we first are told that Joanna is not wearing enough pieces of flair.
0: It's a lot. It's a lot of flair as it is but it's a lot of
1: flair. What we end up with is some of the most circular logic and roundaboutism that you will ever hear.
0: Back at the office, as they're walking back into the building, they encounter Tom, one of their older colleagues who has a memo in his hand and is talking about a staff meeting that they're going to have, that they're bringing in these efficiency experts, the Bob's essentially, as you alluded to. And fears of downsizing and layoffs and all this stuff and there's one it's so subtle but it's such a good visual gag as as they're walking back into the building they go down this like slight hill and there's like the flat surface and they come back up the the other hill and you can see tom struggling as he tries to get back up the other side it's a really nice visual gag
1: yeah so those are those are drainage ditches in texas and basically it's there are run, they're little runoff ditches for rainwater to run through because you get really severe rains in Texas. And just the visual gag of him struggling up a hill where he's exasperately saying, I'm going to stand, stand in line with those scumbags.
0: At this point is where we also first learn of his brilliant million dollar idea of his jump to conclusions, Matt.
1: I mean, it's no pet rock, but.
0: it's It's not, and it's not. A great idea, either. So it's there when Peter starts talking about how when he was in high school, his guidance counselor asked him, like, what What would you do if you had a million dollars, and you know you could essentially work the job that you wanted wanted to, and whatever your answer would be would be, you know, what you were supposed to do. So if you would work on cars, you would be a mechanic and and all that stuff. And Peter said that he never had an answer, and that's why he used it in attack. So. I wanted to ask you, Tom. Would you have an answer to that question? Like, what would you, what would you do for work if money wasn't really an object, or would you work at all?
1: I mean, I was never really asked that question in high school. Me either. I mean, it, it's you know, it is kind of a bullshit question.
0: So you would agree with Michael, who says it is a stupid question.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and I won't get into to the reasoning he he says. You know, he tries to say, you know, the point of the exercise and then he goes, then he gets cut off by PC load letter. What the fuck does that mean?
0: Another classic line and a, a meme that is well circulated and also one of my favorite lines of the movie, because we've all we've all been there. We've all fought with printers and copiers.
1: So it's after this that Peter is on his way home and we are introduced quite strikingly to his next door neighbor.
0: When you go into peter's apartment it is i thought it is such a guy's such a single guy's apartment like it's very bland it's very the colors are very beige and bland and minimalistic like it it is very much a bachelor's pad for sure it
1: is it it's the outdated kitchen the 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 flags and the and the posters just push pin to the wall it's very like mid twenties guys.
0: So the next day they're back at the office and all the staff is gathered around for a staff meeting. They're all standing, which seems, I don't know, maybe that was the thing. There was too many people for the conference room, but I wondered how long they were standing. But anyway, so there's a giant gray banner that says, is this good for the company? And it just, if that's not corporate bullshit, I don't know what is.
1: That's the corporatist of bullshit.
0: It is. And you see this, like, wall of filing cabinets and cubicles, and it looks very drab. And again, they really did an excellent job with the aesthetic and and really making this look realistic and boring and, like, soulless. So I just, I thought they did a fantastic job with that.
1: One thing about Mike Judge is he is very detail-oriented. When you've ever seen him discuss King of the Hill, he discusses a lot about how much detail goes into the backgrounds and whether it's weather whether it's it's the color he he's very focused on those little details because mm-hmm. they make it seem so much more realistic
0: and then you see that the boss bill lumberg introduces one of the bobs as a new consultant there he's essentially there to see how the company can run things more smoothly i.e. layoffs and cutbacks so <laughs> He slides in there at the end that next Friday is Hawaiian shirt day and you cut to the staff and they all have just like this bored, unenthusiastic faces to them. And it's like, it's very, it's very important to point out that they, they really try to slip that in there as some kind of incentive for the employee. And they use, look, you know, we're doing fun things and we want the employees to have fun. And it's just, it's just this backdoor, again, corporate bullshit that like that that, that's not going to do anything for morale is wearing a hawaiian shirt on a friday really and i've been i've been at jobs where they've had that and it's like this is not motivating me to do any better at my job no so then we cut to milton talking on the phone about something another thread that kind of runs through the movie about him having to move his desk. And he basically says, if I have to move my desk one more time, you know, I'm going to quit. I've already moved my desk four times this year. And you see him holding on to this bright red swing line stapler. Now, that is such an iconic piece of this movie. And Tom, I'm sure that you've had them, but swing line staplers are very heavy duty. They're very top line. Um, And at the time... Swingline didn't make red staplers. They had to actually spray paint them for the movie. And it wasn't until about three years after the movie that they started to produce red staplers. And now it is their top selling stapler of all time.
1: They are the tanks of staplers.
0: They are. They are massive and they are very heavy. Like it's a weapon. You could hurt somebody with one of those things.
1: And you can't break the damn thing.
0: No, you can't. It is. It is unbreakable.
1: This movie is the greatest endorsement for swing Line staplers, but it's it's as Milton is discussing this. First, he overhears the Bobs talking, and he hears the he sees the the uh, he, he reads their lips about staplers about stapler. He's also then talking to Peter, who's trying to duck out of work early so that Lumberg won't ask him to work on the weekend. And Milton's telling him about if they don't listen to me, I I'm gonna burn this place. <laughs> I'm going to burn this place to the ground.
0: Something that, that struck me about this scene as Peter is trying to shut down his computer, first of all, throwback to those giant old desktops from the late 90s. Like that that was definitely a throwback or relic of that time.
1: Imagine turning your, your computer off at work.
0: Well, and that's, for yeah, first of all, I don't think I ever turn my computer off at work. I just, you know, you just shut it or you know put it to sleep or whatever but my question and again it's a movie and and sometimes i try to bring or i unintentionally bring too much logic to this but why was he waiting for his computer to shut down like if i wanted to get out of there that badly and not have to work on saturday i wouldn't have waited i would have just left and not had lumber catch me leaving but you know
1: but as so he's waiting for the computer to to shut down it finally does He's constantly checking, surveilling for Lumberg. He doesn't see him. He thinks he's clear. He turns around and Lumberg is right behind him. Yeah. Hey, Peter, what's happening? Uh, I'm going to need you to come in on Saturday. And oh, by the way, I'm going to need you to come in on Sunday too.
0: It's like the death blow. It's like not not just Saturday, but that's your whole fucking weekend at that point.
1: Oh, that sucks. It's Mm -hmm. because you're working like 12 straight days at that point. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we then cut to the hypnotherapist office uh, where we are introduced to the hypnotherapist and we're introduced to Peter's, at the time, girlfriend.
0: What's interesting, I don't know if you picked up on this, but there were two other people, a man and a woman, sitting off to the side. And I was very confused. Like, were these his parents? Were the, was it a group session? But you would learn later that they were friends of his girlfriends. But I was, I didn't remember that. And I couldn't figure out who they were at first.
1: It's, it's very, and I never picked up on that either. Now, as we see with the, with the hypnotherapist and the girlfriend, Seinfeld fans will recognize these two. So the hypnotherapist is the guy who played FDR, Franklin Delano Romanowski, in the backwards episode, the India, the the India wedding episode, he's the one that tells Kramer to drop dead. The girlfriend is part of Jerry's girlfriend club. She's one of the numerous actresses who plays Jerry's girlfriend on the show, and she is Schmoopy from the Soup Nazi episode. And in fact, the face she makes when Peter asks him. Ask the hypnotherapist if you could have it so that I feel like I'm fishing. So going from work is the same face she makes when the soup Nazi catches her and Jerry kissing in the soup in the soup line, and Jerry has to choose between her and the soup. And she he goes, "Do I know you?"
0: In both in both that show and this movie, those were two very good lines.
1: It's at this point where he gets he puts Peter into hypnosis. And as he's putting Peter into hypnosis, the uh, hypnotherapist is having a heart attack.
0: The sweat that starts to happen, and it really highlights, I've always noticed in every rewatch of this, the big mole that's on his head, and it's just, yeah, and he just keels over.
1: This scene always made me, like, anxious. Mm -hmm. It's like the reverse of ASMR. But he collapses, and as they're trying to revive him... He is, Peter is still in this kind of hypnotic state.
0: He looks so calm and he's smiling a little bit to himself. And it's just a complete change of character. And it's, it's neat to see that.
1: So then what happens is the next day, instead of going into work, he sleeps all day till four o'clock and the messages are phenomenal. There's numerous messages from Bill Lumberg and everyone starts yeah hi yeah 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 i was away from my phone i just wanted to see if you called. which is one of my favorites one of the other messages is the girlfriend telling him telling him you need to be at work and she says you know first you don't do anything while he while he dies then you just embarrass me in front of my friends he hangs up at her and she goes listen asshole no one no one hangs up the, and oh by the way i've been cheating on you
0: And a a couple of things in that scene that that really kind of got me was, first, when she leaves that message, you see the answering machine just, like, jump a little bit because she's yelling so loud.
1: That's a really cool little detail.
0: Excellent touch, I thought. Very good. But my question, and again, this is, I'm splitting hairs here, but, like, why was the answering machine in the bedroom? I mean, if you guys are old enough to remember answering machines, it was usually, like, in the kitchen or you know, somewhere around there. Like, it was just odd to me that it was in the bedroom. And again, we see his bedroom is very, like, stark, very minimalist, very boring and drab. And I noticed something I missed before. He has all his clothes, like, perfectly, like, laid out on a chair next to his bed. Like, he was ready to go to work, it looked like.
1: And so he continues to be in this kind of hypnotic state. He goes to, he goes back to the restaurant. He asks. Jennifer Anderson Aniston to lunch.
0: And he's so smooth about it because she's she's hesitant about going with him. And he's just like, all right. He's like, I'm gonna gonna go next door. If you want to join me, that's where I'll be. And he's just like so chill about it. And I think that kind of catches her attention a little bit.
1: It's after this where they go in there having lunch and he goes, Well, I'm not gonna go back to work and I'm not gonna pay bills and this and that. And I instead I want I want you and me to watch kung fu movies.
0: hmm so in the meantime, Tom is meeting with the Bobs, the consultants, and he basically has to explain to them what he does and why his job is so important. And you figure out that he's essentially a middleman and you know, the the underlying message is that like his job can be easily cut. And you can see him getting more frantic and he, he goes, you know, I deal with customers, I have people skills, and he's getting more upset and yelling, and it's just another very, very funny comedic gag.
1: And this is also where the infamous, what would you say you do here? Yeah. Wine is. And he goes, I'm a people person. What's wrong with you people? We then also, now we don't see Samir's meeting with the Bobs.
0: I re- I mentioned that. I noted that in my notes. I, I wonder why.
1: I, I don't know why, but it's after Tom is goes running out that Michael comes in. He looks and he goes... Michael Bolton, I love his whole collection. It doesn't get any better than when he sings when a man loves a wo- loves a woman.
0: I celebrate his entire catalog. Not me, Bob.
1: <laughs> Peter comes in, he grabs his address book, he's dressed casually. Michael reminds him that he has his meeting with the Bobs today and that he, he he wasn't he had come to work the whole weekend. So he goes and meets with the Bobs.
0: It's it's fascinating to me and again movie magic that when he goes in to meet with the bobs he's right on time it's his turn to meet with them and you see when he walks in very casually he grabs a glass of water and he says hi bob bob
1: hey, bob you know he's just going through all of this and you know he says i maybe only do about 15 minutes of actual work in a given week mm-hmm. and why should i care
0: it's not that i'm lazy it's that i just don't care and again been there
1: John McGinley, his delivery, he makes the lines with his delivery. This was really a specialty of his when he was on Scrubs. And he goes, What if, and this is hypothetical,
0: mm-hmm. what
1: if we got you some profit sharing thing? Would that would that help you? And I don't know, you know maybe. You know, maybe. Maybe. And then one of the just smoothest directions I've ever seen, after he meets with the Bobs, he says, Good luck with your firings. I hope they I hope they go well. The pleasure is all on this side of the table.
0: I think something else, too, on a more serious note is that he mentions, you know, if I work harder, I don't see another dime, you know, in my paycheck. And I think that's something very relatable that a lot of us work really hard and we don't see bonuses. We don't see raises. We don't see recognition. And it's like, what are we doing this for? And the line that he says that, you know, the only real motivation is to avoid getting hassled and it only makes you work hard enough not to get fired. And again, I I really feel that sentiment in some jobs that I've had. And it's like, I, and I'll get, we want to talk about this a little bit at the end, just the discussion of like, what corporate America is not doing right, especially they, they completely fail their employees in terms of appreciation and motivation. And and this scene is really clear, a clear example of that.
1: It's a line that's extremely prescient and it's kind of a throwaway joke, but it's it's a line that is very indicative of what corporate America is like
0: and speaking of that too during this rewatch I paused the tv around uh, when you could see the whiteboard in the back and it has very very corporate lingo on it like planning to plan and words like gap analysis and integrating action plans and contingency planning and value scan and it's just like I was rolling my eyes watching that but it's funny Again, Mike Judge, the nuance here, the little subtleties are just perfect.
1: So it's after Peter meets with the Bobs that they are going through their evaluations with Bill Lombard. On the evaluation, it says for Thompson Mikowski, useless. He's, he's useless. We can, we can get rid of him. Milton Waddams, they basically say he's not even really an employee. They say he was let go five years ago and no one told him.
0: Due to a glitch in the payroll system, he's still getting paid.
1: Um, So we fixed the glitch. So it'll just work itself out.
0: That's just so sad and rude and unfair that you can't even tell this employee that they're terminated. Like, you're just going to let it work itself. And we see Milton kind of going through some stuff as this works itself out.
1: Then they find out that Samir and Michael are going to be laid off.
0: They do say that they were very impressed with Peter, which Lumberg disagrees and says that he's been very flaky and has been having problems with his TPS report.
1: The the acting by the Bobs. First they say, that's just a straight shooter with upper management running all over him. When bit when Lumberg pushes back and John T. McGinley's getting upset and Paul has to and Bob has to hold him back and go, We feel that he's not being motivated. And then they ask him about uh, and then they ask him how much time he spends on the TPS reports, and that gets into the "Damn, it feels good to be a gangster" montage. That's when he he guts the fish and puts it on the puts it on the cover sheets of the TPS reports.
0: Which I don't understand. Again, me me applying too much logic to this. Like, were you gonna cook the fish there? Like, what was the end game? You know what I mean? I don't
1: know, but it's just fun. It's it you is know fun. he. He uh, he unscrews the handle that keeps giving him the electric shocks on the front door. He is just living life. He knocks down the front wall of his cubicle, so he sees he has a he has a window. It's just it's a lot of fun. Bill Lundberg says, "Oh, you know, well, we got to talk about this. Ah, I can't." He goes, I I can't right now. I I actually have a meeting with the Bobs. You have to come back later. The Bobs, I didn't know about that. He goes, yeah, they called me at home.
0: Mm-hmm. As he <laughs> walks away, it's classic. He goes, oh, you
1: know, nice talking. We'll get this all repaired and cleaned up, cleaned up for you.
0: <laughs> it's interesting to see Lumber kind of grovel a little bit in that in that situation, but as he was like such a dick to Peter before, like it's 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 an interesting turn of character.
1: That's when he gets his car gets towed.
0: Mm-hmm. Lumberg's
1: car gets towed.
0: And the bumper is the bumper taken off. peels off. And we see as that scene is closing in at the office that there's yet again another paper jam and the printer and Michael is is fighting with the printer and and the paper is it's like coming in and out of the printer. And it's like been there. Early in my career, I worked for the admissions department of a hospital and there was this big industrial copier. As you can imagine, hospitals go through a lot of paper, at least back then. And I was the only one that could fix this printer. I could get my hands in there and you know, pull out the paper jam, wherever it was. And this thing, I, I wanted to beat the living shit out of this thing, as we'll see later. But like every time I see these scenes with Michael or, or Samir like, getting pissed off at the printer, I'm just like, so relatable. So I totally get it.
1: It's at this scene where Peter asked Michael to, to meet with him that night, and he's trying to break the news to him gently that he's going to be laid off. That's when he asks him, this virus, how does it work? Because that's the other thing. It, it, it's a relic in that their jobs are preparing all this code for the switchover for Y2K. And so they have to basically go in and change all the all the dates so that it goes to two thousand, not zero zero because remember, there was a lot of very real panic that that was a thing. He explains that basically whenever they do these transactions, there's like little remainders, fractions of a penny that would basically just get taken off and put into an account and he just go it's just like Superman three they
0: did it in Superman three. It's actually pretty genius, if you think. of it. It's a simple but pretty genius idea, if you can pull it off.
1: Well, and we'll get to that. He said, well, why don't you do it? Well, I have a job. What if you didn't? And then they're sitting at a bar. There are a couple of things that David utters that are not great, and we won't get into them. I told them I like Michael Bolton's music. Oh, that's not right.
0: And they essentially come back to this computer virus and scheme. And Michael says, I just, you know, I can write the code or whatever, but I don't know how to install it. And that's, that's when they bring in Samir.
1: And Samir just goes, well, how do we do this? It's just like Superman three.
0: Michael says to Samir that it's essentially like a fail safe plan. And you came to America for the land of opportunity and you have two options in front of you, either unemployment, or early retirement, and obviously, like, which one are you going to choose at that point? But it's it's really his way to sway him, you know, to to participate in the scheme.
1: They said we're not going to go to prison. We're going to go to a minimum security resort. They have conjugal visits in there. Shit, I'm a free man. I haven't had a conjugal visit in six months. We have to swear that we're not going to tell anyone. Then you hear Dietrich Bader goes, "I'm I'm good.
0: He's cool. Don't worry about him. Yeah, well, who the fuck is that?
1: Oh, he's cool. Don't worry about him."
0: and it really it really lightens the tension of the scene i think and it's it's just that little comedic relief at the end of that scene that's that's incredible
1: so after that it's the dramatic setup to installing the virus
0: this is my second favorite scene in the movie again so well put together this montage that they do it's just i love it so much
1: and they just after it just goes well that was easy
0: <laughs> it was and it's it's aesthetically like it, it looks like they're really doing something like criminal, which I guess they are. And yeah. it's like, some of the parts are in slow motion and the sound effects in this scene. It's just, and the the interaction with each other, how like Michael and Samir, like spin their chairs to hand off the disc. And then they like Samir hands it to Peter behind his back. And just the whole choreography of this scene to that music is perfection. Well,
1: and also to it, this all starts with him accepting the promotion Mm -hmm. The Bob's going, we'll get you, we'll get some people under you right away.
0: He's in this like really nice suit. It's a complete, you know, change from, from what he was before. And he's almost like playing the role into this too, you know, to forward the plot and the, and the scheme.
1: After this, we find out, we meet Drew, another coworker in the office. We find out that Tom Smikowski came into a lot of money after being laid off for a very interesting reason.
0: So essentially, he was very upset by his firing and he actually does attempt uh, to kill himself in his own garage. But his wife comes home and he realizes, you know, how much he loves her and that he wants to live. And you think everything's great. He pulls out uh, his driveway, backing out. And then what happens?
1: He gets team boned by a drunk driver.
0: It's pretty. It's, you really aren't expecting it. It's always like a jump to me, even though I know it's going to happen now. It's, yeah, it's pretty jarring.
1: You find out he broke his back, his neck, every bone in his body. But he got a huge settlement, so he's having, he had a party to celebrate. So it's on this last day as they're leaving. you know, They're all in the car, and they, they're saying, you know, I stole something. We all stole something. No, I stole something else. And you see that they've dropped the printer in a field, and they're basically taking out a hit on the printer with a baseball bat.
0: I just, again, so relatable. There have been so many printers and copiers and computers. You guys know technology is such a bitch and such a pain in the ass sometimes, especially back in the 90s, early 2000s, when it wasn't so reliable or good, and you just wanted to beat the shit out of it.
1: So, and we talked about this a little bit before, you know, the subtleties of this scene of of Samir just very calmly beating it with the bat, and then Michael just taking, just, trying to rip it apart with his bare hands, just like a feral dog. Then you see them dancing, dancing in the apartment. Samir does his break dancing. So the next morning, Jennifer Anderson asks, you got, what are you guys celebrating? Peter goes, I'm not at liberty to say, I really can't say. He then tries to explain to her in the car. As they're driving to Tom's cookout, what the plan is. And she keeps just asking, how is that not stealing? He then says, you know, the, the, Tray with the pennies. Did you take a penny from the tray? She goes from the children. No, that's the jar. I mean, the pennies for any everybody.
0: Can I just point out? Did you did you notice the not so subtle ad placement of the Pepsi cup? That thing was ginormous.
1: Both times in the car, she's drinking. She's drinking Pepsi.
0: Well, there's enough liquid in that huge cup.
1: So we get to the cookout. We see that Tom is in. He's in the wheelchair with the halo brace. And we have this really kind of heartwarming scene. First of all, we see that Tom now has enough money to make the jump to conclusions, Matt. And it's exactly what you thought it was.
0: I, It's stupider than I thought it was, yeah. honestly.
1: Tom goes, has this really heartfelt scene. And he goes, I, Peter, I know you get down about your job, but good things can happen in this world. Look at me. And then Peter just kind of puts his hand on his toe. Because it's Mm -hmm. the only part of his body that's sticking out. There's discussion about what it's like in prison. They're asking his lawyer about what it's like in prison. Then Drew says, you know, who's here with Joanna? Oh, that's she's here with me. Oh, okay. Well, you know, Lumberg fucked her.
0: Which kind of sends Peter spiraling a bit. It sends
1: Peter spiraling. And it really is, it kind of is what snaps him out of the hypnosis.
0: You're right about that. Because I... I thought about that as I rewatched this movie and I couldn't really place when he kind of snapped out of it, but you're absolutely right. It's this moment. Yeah. It's
1: this moment. He confronts her. She gets out of the car. She breaks up with him and he goes, well, that may be, but I didn't sleep with Lumberg. There's a scene where he's having nightmares of Lumberg having sex. It's after this too, that Milton has been, they've moved a bunch of boxes into Milton's office. They have now asked him to move to Unit Bay
0: he doesn't nobody deserves this but it's you you there's a lot of empathy at least on my end for him and you know we also see back at tchotchkes that joanna's boss stan is talking to her again about her flair and her lack of flair and she essentially just goes off and says yes i want to express myself and gives him the middle finger and says i hate this job and i don't need it and she quits
1: And it's after this as well that Peter goes to check on the account and he sees that it worked too well. Basically, what happens afterwards is about a minute and a half of them just cursing, son of a bitch, shit. I think Samir says, this is a fuck.
0: Now, likely we find out that the company won't know for another three to four days. And it was supposed to take about two years to actually accrue this amount, an amount of $305,000. And Peter says, I thought you said it would work. And Michael says, well, it technically did work.
1: They're going to notice 305, 326, Michael.
0: It is not a mundane detail, Michael.
1: They're trying to figure out how to basically get rid of the money. They're they're looking up money laundering in a dictionary. They're trying to find drug dealers that will help them launder the money. Michael just keeps reading the, the definition to conceal the source through an intermediary, into, into an intermediary. I can't believe what kind of nerds we are. We're looking up money laundering in a dictionary. Um, it's in the, when they run into Orlando Jones selling magazine subscriptions. They think he can help them, because they, but it turns out he's a uh, software developer from the other company, from Intertrade, And so he then has to keep him quiet by buying 40 subscriptions to Vibe.
0: That's a lot of subscriptions to vibe. Yeah. I just want to point out when Peter goes to bed that night, he has another nightmare and it's essentially a sentencing scene with all three of them. And if you notice, I never picked up on this before the lawyer that is representing them is the lawyer from Tom's party is also Tom's lawyer.
1: Very well done. Samir and Michael do not go away to minimum security prison. They go away for four years to regular prison. In the dream, in the dream, and the judge tells Peter instead that you've led a trite meaningless life, mm-hmm. and you're a very, very bad person because that's what Samir tells him before he storms out of the apartment. So then Peter realizes that the only thing to do is to take the heat for for everybody. He puts the the travelers checks in an envelope. He writes a confession letter. He goes and visits Joanna and reconciles with her because he I'm going to be going away for a while to. To jail,
0: I think at this point, it's really a sign of his character growth that he you like you said, he snapped out of the the hypnosis and he kind of realized what he did. And he's really trying to make it right with all the people in his life and take ownership. And I think that's really this this the sign of that character arc and that character growth in the movie well, it's
1: the maturation, yeah, it, it's him actually being an adult for about eighty five minutes of the movie. It's why are all these things happening to me? In this moment, it's cl- there's clarity and maturation. Diedrich Bader says goodbye to him, and he slips the, the traveler's checks under, under Lumberg's door. But the other thing that we should mention, too, is that it's, it's realized during this apartment scene. The Lumberg that Joanna has the, uh, sleeps with is not Bill Lumberg. It's another Lumberg.
0: Apparently a younger, hotter Lumberg, which yeah. is how it should be
1: he goes and he just goes they're not related are they but he slides under the door he then tries to crawl and get it back but he can't
0: mm-hmm. it's that you see that regret in his character right away but when he sees he can't reach and can't get it back it's like oh yeah i need to do this yeah I you need know, to it's do done. This.
1: that morning milton is also too we should notice too they do notice at the office that the money is missing
0: Oh, they do. You're right. When they, when Lundberg is down, he goes down to talk to Milton in the basement when he is literally in the storage cage. The aesthetics of this is, is really good.
1: It's backlit. So you just, you just see the shadow of the cage. Yeah. We got a little bit of a pest control problem here. If you can just get a can of pesticide and, and then you see like a rat scurry across
0: another executive comes down and gets lumberg and says there's money missing you know we got to figure this out and as as lumberg walks away shuts the lights off and that's when milton's like that was the last straw and you're like what is coming next
1: he goes up to lumberg's office asking for his paycheck and the secretary just trying to shoo him away she walks away and he walks in lumberg's office the door is, was unlocked
0: and to me and i always kind of get caught in this every time i see the movie I think he's going in to grab the stapler and he grabs the stapler, but that's not the case.
1: So as Peter is packing up to go to prison and he says goodbye to Lawrence, there's a really bad prison sex joke. There's a couple of them in here. We won't get into, but as he's driving, he hears sirens and he's looking up and he's trying to see what they're, where they're. And once he realizes you see the look on his face, when he realizes where they're going, so he pulls up and he sees that the, in the tech office is engulfed in flames, absolutely engulfed in flames. And everyone's kind of standing around with these blank looks on their faces. You know, these are just rank and file workers. So now it's like, well, what do we do now?
0: You also see Milton kind of like milling around in the crowd throughout this and he starts to walk away. And he starts to and- like
1: look back and sneakily kind of walk away.
0: And Peter picks up on this and puts together that it was Milton who caused the fire and and slowly like a smile kind of like crawls across his face about him putting together what happened.
1: The scene cuts next to a pile of rubble, a burned rubble, and we see that it's Peter actually shelving away the rubble. He's working with Lawrence, the next door neighbor at the construction company that's basically removing what's left of the Inatech office. And they find the burned stapler in, in the shovel and he says i think i know someone who actually wants this and it's after that that michael and samir meet him at the at the site and they ask him to lunch and they ask him if he wants a job at in atrode and he says i think the fire took care of everything so it, basically the fire destroyed all the evidence it turns out that he was very happy just working outside the last li- his last line in the movie is fucking a you know, he finally kind of found the job that makes him happy, which is just working outside in nature. We we then we get cuts to the last scene of the movie, and it's his tropical resort, something out of the end of Trading Places, and it's Milton sitting on a beach chair, and he's and he has a I ate the worm T-shirt <laughs> on, and he and you hear him, he's complaining about the great the clumps of salt on his margarita glass. And the waiter just dismisses him, and he's muttering about how he'll take his travelers' checks to a to a competing resort, and I can burn this place to the ground. I can poison the guacamole. Like I think he says, that I I could put cyanide in the guacamole.
0: Milton's very revengeful, isn't he?
1: But then, and that's how you basically learn that he took the money. So, in a way, the movie ends where the money went to someone who probably deserved it.
0: Yeah, and I just, again, I think this movie is tied up so nicely and ends so well, and it's just, it's a nice little bow on top of the movie that everybody, you know, Peter, Michael, and Samir kind of escaped responsibility. They got jobs that they seem to be happier in.
1: Peter matures,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and he takes responsibility, and Milton gets rewarded for all the times he's kind of pushed away to the side.
0: So a couple things that we wanted to mention before we wrap it up. So first I just have to say the ties and the suspenders that are rampant in this movie are very, very nineties vibe. Like almost every guy has those like suspenders on. So I just, I, I picked up on that. That was pretty funny.
1: The only time place I've seen that since is like in a tuxedo, like, like some tuxedos will still have the suspenders in lieu of a belt, Mm -hmm. but I have not seen that in a long time.
0: And of course, all the memes that we talked about, Lumberg and Michael and even Peter. And it's just, again, like Twitter has is, it's all over Twitter. Uh, it's just, it's really funny that it's still, you know, over 20 years later, very prevalent today and very relatable.
1: It's really, it's a movie. Like I said, a lot, some of the jokes do not age well at all. But a lot of the overarching themes of this really still kind of ring true, especially about the, about the corporate culture in America specifically, and really in Western culture that you are expected to kind of give your life to the company for no other reason than it makes their stock price go higher.
0: It's very disheartening and it's very frustrating sometimes. And there was even a comment, I don't know if it was Joanna in the movie said, you know, that most of us hate our jobs, you know, that's just a thing. And I was thinking about that and and I think that is true. I think a lot of people do hate their jobs, but we don't have to. And I think it's the behavior of corporations and a lot of people in leadership that don't seem to understand what actually motivates people and what actually makes people feel a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose and, and to want to make them do a good job. And I think if they kind of met employees halfway and actually listened to what they really want and really need, Maybe so many people wouldn't hate their jobs, but there's no interest at the, in the corporation's eyes to do that.
1: Well, and there's there's so much truth when when Peter has his monologue in the bar, and he's convincing Michael to to write the virus that's going to rip off and attack. You know, he says human beings weren't meant to live their lives in a, in an office, listening to eight different bosses drone on about mission statements. That's the other thing too is when you think about it. I mean, it's all of the years that you put in could all be pushed aside. The second your employment is no longer profitable to them Mm -hmm. and not even just profitable, but like obscenely profitable.
0: And I think that a lot of people, and again, I felt this too that a lot of people feel replaceable and, and don't feel appreciated. And what does that do to morale? And you're, you're wanting to do a good job if somebody else can just come in tomorrow and do the same job you know
1: and then and that's it it's why should you work why should somebody work hard when they're just going to get replaced maybe not even through any fault of their own but just because the company wants someone younger and cheaper to placate the shareholders
0: and you say that and i think something that we not that we skipped over but one of the scenes where the, I think it was when the Bobs were talking to Peter and letting him know that they're cutting software people, including Samir and Michael. And he essentially said, one of the Bobs essentially says that they're going to bring in, you know, entry level grads who are really cheap and then outsource, you know, some of the work to Singapore. And it's like that is just dead on to what the corporate mindset is, you know, cheaper labor and, you know, what can we outsource?
1: What could we exactly? And it's all about how can we make obscene profits for our shareholders and not just even regular shareholders, but just the super rich ones.
0: Let me ask you this now that we're on this topic and we've seen recently like the auto worker strike and the the writers guild and the actors guild strike. Do you feel, and with inflation being as rampant as it is, do you feel like the tide is turning at all that the workers are really getting sick of it and are fighting back to some degree. Do you feel that at all?
1: I mean, we've seen these ebbs and flows. I will tell you that it seems like now. Granted, I haven't gone through. I I, I haven't seen the full, you know, the full deal of what the writers got, what the actors got, and I think I'm I'm not. I'm a little confused. I th- believe. I think a couple of the automakers resolved with like one or two of them. I don't know if they resolved the the general. But you look at that, and even going back, I think it was last year with, I think it was either UPS or or the John Deere strikes. It's been a while since unions were able to get pretty much everything they asked for. And it feels like these deals, at least from from the surface, were such wins for the unions a big thing with the with the actors was not allowing the the studios to have basically the rights to background actors in perpetuity
0: and that's that's why i brought this up that like you said these deals seem to give these unions almost all if not all of what they're asking for and I and I don't I wasn't expecting that I wasn't expecting them to get as much as as they wanted I mean good for them absolutely they deserve all that stuff but I and again is this just these small examples of these corporations placating them and it's just it's not going to be the norm is it just gonna is it just to kind of quiet people down for now but like I I don't know a lot of my friends and family that I talk to like they're not happy in their jobs. And and a lot of it is bullshit. And, And a lot of it is very reminiscent of shit that's in this movie.
1: And it does, this does feel like a moment in time where the unions for the first time in a long time have leverage. And not only do they have leverage, they have leadership that fully understands their worth and fully understands how to use the leverage that they do have. So this does feel like a moment where there's a, where there's significant positive momentum on that front. Now, you know, we'll see, I'm not sure what the next big labor dispute's going to be, but you know, I think we'll see. But I think in terms of, of where unions are in this country, I think you have to be really pleased with the way the writer strike, the actor strike, the UAW strike really have turned out to this point.
0: And I think too, Generationally, and you know, some millennials and Gen Zers have this reputation of being anti work and being very lazy and not working as hard as the boomers. And to some degree, yes, there are some of them that have a terrible work ethic, and I will absolutely agree with that. But on the other hand, I think that the ones that do have a good work ethic but just want things to be fair, I'm really hopeful that these two generations and the generations beyond fight for more rights and more respect and more benefits and recognition from these corporations. And I hope they get it.
1: Well, and I think what we're going to see too, what we're seeing too, is that these generations are not just going to accept whatever's given to them. I should say it's not just going to accept whatever line is given to them.
0: Just to wrap up again, I feel like some two takeaways from this movie is that, you know, you don't, and and it's, it's, it's easier said than done, but you don't want to give your power or your agency away to other people by seeing yourself as a victim. Like Peter did, he felt very powerless. He was very unhappy in his job until he was kind of jolted out of that by, you know, again, this wasn't. That part, the hypnosis wasn't the super realistic part, but I think there is a certain point there, that and something that I've certainly had to learn, especially in those these last couple of years, that it's like you still have to find your own happiness, set your own boundaries, find your work life balance, and not make work your identity because that will absolutely eat you alive and make you miserable.
1: We see that in older generations. They want to work to a point where literally they just want to die at their desk.
0: Yeah. My grandmother was very much like that. She worked into her 80s. And if we would have let her, she would have died at her desk, honestly.
1: Their work is their identity. And when that goes away, they don't know what to do. The, The famous entertainment example is Jay Leno. All he wanted to do was work. Now, Jay Leno also screwed over a lot of people in Hollywood really all you have to do is just find whatever Howard Stern clips are talking about Jay Leno because that pretty much sums it up better than we ever could that Jay Leno basically was willing to stab anyone in the back he could to get it to to make sure only he and he alone got to the pedestal you know but he was another person where all he he didn't take vacations he didn't want guest hosts all he wanted to do was work work is not a self-identity it can't be it can't be. You have to be able to prioritize yourself and you have to be able to know that there is a time where at the end of the day, you have to come first.
0: Keeping those boundaries is super important. And I think the last lesson to take away from this, and this is something that Peter kind of alluded to, is is really taking the time to evaluate like how you're spending your time if you didn't have to pay bills or like what you do in your free time and what brings you joy, uh, you know, whether that's, you know, spending time outside or even video games or painting or sewing or whatever you want to do, but just some activity, not work related, that that brings you joy and happiness. And that I think that fills something in you that that work kind of takes out of you, I guess, if that makes sense, you know,
1: and it's something that I know, I need to try and find in my life as well. And I think a lot of us do.
0: Okay guys, that's our show. So tune in next week for another episode. I'm going to cover a topic that is a real throwback to like the seventies, eighties, early nineties. So please tune in. It's going to be, it's going to be a really good show. If you enjoy our show, please give us a five-star review, subscribe, and follow us on social media at the tell me about podcast. And send us comments and episode suggestions to the Podcast at gmail.com.
1: Have a great week, everybody.
0: Bye.